Hello, welcome to Rusty Sonnets, the podcast where I take an old poem, read it out, give it a good going over before I wander off on one. My name is Niall, and today we'll be looking at There's a Certain Shaft of Light by Emily Dickinson. Now, before I begin, I just want to say sorry to any regular listeners, because we're late today. I'm recording this about 15 minutes before I normally post the thing, so... Today we'll be spent doing a lot of things, recording, um, I'll edit this as soon as I've finished and try and get it up hopefully by lunchtime, but to anyone that has been waiting for their morning fix of Rusty Sonnets, all three of you, um, I'm really sorry about that, uh, but it should be up by lunchtime. Why am I saying this now? Anyway, um, Emily Dickinson, you see that, that that's an interesting thing that happened to me, I'm having a little argument with myself. And then logic intrudes and then fancy overtakes logic to use fancy in a romantic sense of the word. And um, that sums up, well, in some ways it sums up Emily Dickinson quite well. So I'm really happy to get to get round to Emily Dickinson because she is an important figure within this sort of historical idea of progression within poetry that I've been built up, um, been building up. So, so I'm glad we got round to Walt Whitman as an American poet, um, she's interesting because I think she compliments Whitman. Whitman is a poet who was still quite the romantic in how in his ethos, but was quite the modernist in the way that he wrote those long free lines and used free verse, even though it was actually inspired in some ways by the King James Bible. And Dickinson was sort of the other way round, as in her poetry was quite traditional, tr- traditionally formal in one sense in its style. But the kind of ethos of her poetry, the fragmentary nature of it was quite, it sort of, it feels like one of those ideas that presaged modernism. So, um, and also I should admit that I have this, I've just, I love my, I love this podcast and I love teaching and I'll tell you why, because every now and again, be it in a lecture theater or be it when I'm just sitting here in front of a microphone and talking to you lot. It's I, I, I every now and again I go off my little beaten track, follow a line of inquiry slightly away from where I've strategized to go within this within this session. And so I thought, oh wait, let I know, I'll start talking about this for a while because I think this is important, but let's see how far we go. I think lecturers do this in the same way that standard uh, stand up comedians riff on a subject when a stand stand up comedian starts to improvise a little bit before they go back to their routine and they might keep that bit or they might throw it away. And lecturers can be the same. We kind of ask questions and we branch off a little bit and we try and connect it to other parts of of, of history. Um, well, I'm talking poetry lectures, but I'm but I'm sure other lecturers do the same thing in other subjects. So and and so we we kind of wander off a little bit, and this is the bit I love. I used to fear this because I think it really played into my imposter syndrome. That every now and again you'd wander off a little bit too far, and um, you would wade into the depths of your ignorance. And there you are. So there's nothing more. There's no bigger feeling of exposure than being in front of an audience. But whereas with a sort of entertaining poetry, sort of cabaret or whatever audience, um, I can at least sort of make fun of that. Whenever I've been lecturing and my ignorance just rears up like a massive black tidal wave (laughs) that's about to crash over me. I always feel to just mix up my metaphors a little bit more and my cliches as well. I do feel like that proverbial rabbit in the headlights. I am suddenly kind of 
stiff with fear. Not in that way. And I, uh, I just, I'm frozen and terrified because my ignorance has suddenly gone, here I am. Ha, ha, ha. Whereas now, um, I, I, I think I've buddied up with my ignorance. Ignorance sort of flares up and it's not a big scary wave at all. It's just, um, it's not even a big, it's, it's more like a shadow and the shadow looks really scary but actually it's just a sort of bunny rabbit um, with the moon low in the sky casting its shadow quite long. And it's a really cute bunny rabbit that won't bite you and doesn't have myxomatoses or something like that. So I, um, it's one of those big fat pet rabbits. You know those huge ones that don't do anything. They just seem to sort of flop about and you can just pick them up. And like when you hold them up, they're about half the size of you and you just plonk them down somewhere else. But they're the best animals in the world by merit merit of that. I know we're not on Emily Dickinson yet, so the, sorry, I'll carry on talking about my ignorance and then straight to Emily, I promise. So yeah, but that's why I've made friends with my ignorance because every time now my ignorance rears up, um, I have to fess up to my ignorance. I think that's an important thing. And then I have a duty to go find out about it, to go find out about the thing. So I think this is connected to vanity what you know intellectual vanity if you cast aside your intellectual vanity and your intellectual narcissism your ignorance stops being a tidal wave and it becomes a big cuddly bunny that you just want to kind of run up to and grab and and then that this metaphor is just just the most pathetic thing on the planet isn't it but you you get my drift as i always say when i realize that's my turn of phrase whenever i realize that my metaphors are absolutely rubbish and they're falling apart at the seams but I'm really glad that I, I've made friends with my ignorance and I admit it to myself that I am ignorant and I need to learn. And I try to identify that as much as I can. And it normally is identified by a moment of terror. But now I can at least see that moment of terror and go, OK, I'm all right. Let's go. Let's learn something. Woohoo. Because um, that's what life should be about. Emily Dickinson, she learned a lot of stuff. She's another one of these typical poets. Do you see how just slipped right in there didn't i um just so she's one of these poets again like amy lowell like elizabeth barrett browning that was just so well edu educated that um might not have been given the best resources i guess alexander pope as well was another example wasn't there because he i don't think he had proper schooling um because he was a catholic but she went to she she grew up in amherst massachusetts famously and stayed in that town all her life and I think that's an important detail. There are some really important details of her biography. And I'll cut to the chase right now, which is the ethos of Dickinson seems to be intellectual freedom within physical, environmental and cultural constraints. Um, so she went to two. She was taught really well. She went to two as well as a, a middle class, a young middle class woman of her age could be taught at her time where she was and so she was taught about science she was taught about religion she was taught about literature she had a fantastic education and of course she carried on her reading i mean that's all you have to do with some people sometimes a good good education isn't always taking someone right up to phd level or whatever a good education is just drumming that principle of learning drumming that 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 wrestling match with ignorance into somebody's mind so that once you let go of them they're off they're going to learn for the rest of their life i think that's the most important thing so she was definitely one who who loved knowledge who loved learning 
and was an intellectually fierce and rigorous woman. And this was shown in certain elements in, in her ways of rebelling. So, so there was one famous incident where um, in one of the academies, I think it's in sort of the finishing school that she went to, um, the teachers asked the students to rise if they wanted to remain Christians for their life. And a fair few women, I can't remember, I don't know if she was the only one or not. I think the stories talk it up like she was the only one, but um, there's reason to believe she might not have been. But she she remained seated. And um, the reason that she gave for remaining seated was um, was um, they thought it queer, queer, I didn't rise. I thought a lie would be queerer. So she was so so she already had these principles of rigorous intellectual honesty and to never hold back on expressing a thought that's relevant she she believed she defended in her letters ruthless intellectual honesty those were in letters to her brother and her letters home she was very um she was very close to her brother she was also very close to her brother's wife who she might have been in love with um in in the sense that her her write her letters to her sister-in-law both before the marriage and after the marriage have a tone that you would perhaps use when addressing a lover um there are other affairs that she seemed to have i mean she's sort of part of the image people have of her is of the uh the spinster i guess that, that spent her life in the same in the same town all the time um and certainly after getting out of school she was expected to sort of part to be a woman of the house to entertain guests. Her dad was a member of the Whig Party and was actually elected to Congress for a while. Then he then he lost the next election. But you know he was a bit of a mover and a shaker. So she was always entertaining visitors from the Whig Party and elsewhere in their home, um, which I don't think she enjoyed that much. She just wanted to sit down and write poems. Um, and she became much more serious as a poet as she went along. So we get so so we, we're establishing an image here of Emily Dickinson of someone who knew about science, who wasn't afraid to challenge and question religion, but was growing up at the same time. Even though the Whigs were more of a progressive party than the other party, well, I guess I don't know who they would have been. But um, I can't, you know, I know we have Democrats and Republicans now, but there's so many blanks in my mind for this period of American history. My ignorance is rearing up again. But I'm also quite ignorant of the poets that came before as well, such as Longfellow and the traditions of American poetry. Now, it could be that there was just lots of influence coming across the Atlantic from um, the Romantic poets and the poets before that. There's meant to, it's meant to be that the metaphysical poets played a big influence as well in Emily Dickinson's poetry, which is interesting because the metaphysical poets, while they began to kind of be appreciated by some of the romantics, and then it was only until the times of modernism that they really became popular again, the metaphysical poets, because of their strange habits with imagery. But you can see the influence of the metaphysical poets on Emily Dickinson in her own work. I think we can talk about that a bit more later. Well, as in, let's let's read this poem. I think I've done enough just to, I mean, you can read about her life and the things that she did. And there are some things I might have missed out on. But ultimately, um, oh, one more thing, as Columbo might say. She wasn't published a lot through her lifetime. And she certainly became much more appreciated and rose to the prominence that she has now in the canon 
after she died, um, I think with the final edition of her collected poems, which was in, in um, 1890. And, but she was still quite popular when she, when she was alive. So she wasn't published much and publishers would also sort of use that they, they would, I mean, anyone who knows anything about Emily Dickinson knows that she's characterized by the use of her, the dash in her poetry and the effect that the dash has but her first publications the they, the editors would fall back on house style and would therefore replace her dashes with comma, commas or full stops or um more conventional pu punctuation um so so we know she has these the dickinsonian dash is is very much something that we're aware of um so she also would make her own faxicles a bit like facsimiles where she would stitch together her own books and she would send these books to her friends. And then I think she had quite a following because her friends would read these books to her, to their friends. I mean, this is a culture as I'm always reminding my students, the idea that, you know, a book was a source of entertainment. When you bought a book of poetry, you didn't just buy it to sit there and read it on the train while trying not to wake, make eye contact with anyone on your commute. Um, a book wasn't a private thing up until the, the, the you know, after um, the First World War, because of the rise of radio and literacy, a book was a was an occasion to share. You bought a book, you read it out among people. The, re the reading aloud of a book would be an evening's entertainment for many people in the past. And it was for a much longer time than silent reading is a thing now. So she was popular in that sense. You know, people knew about her. And people were enthusiastic about her work. So she wasn't necessarily obscure. She just wasn't pu widely published by printing presses. But she was hardcore. And I love it. I've made books myself. And it's one of the most rewarding things you can do. Make a little book of your poetry. And stitch it together with your own hands. And then sell it for a few quid at a poetry venue. And buy yourself a couple of beers with the money. I love it. I want more people to think in that way about their art. I know I'm wandering off on one already, but I like the fact that she thought of this idea of sharing her work in this way. And it's kind of sad to see people going to Amazon and going to these other um, publication methods where ultimately you can pretend that your paperback is a mass-produced paperback book from a big publisher. Why do that? If you make your own books and stitch them together and make some beautiful object, um, yes, you only make a few copies. You don't make thousands of copies of it. But the ones that you make are so special and they are something that a massive print run, it couldn't reproduce without going bankrupt. You know, stop seeing the books created from a massive print run as something that, that is of quality, I don't know, or, or wealth or whatever, or, or something that makes you... Um, more authentic or or more established um, and think about actually what you can create and how and what you can share with most of us probably will have a circle of about 30 people that we can share with oh, I'm wandering off on one I'm sorry about this I'll read the poem immediately after this but um and so if that's the case then we should address them in the best way that we can address them and we should be thankful for that for that engagement that's what I think don't worry about being famous people or anything like that, because if you talk to any famous person, it makes them miserable and it doesn't last and it defines their whole life and they can't escape it even when they're not famous. So it's better just to have people who dig what you do 
and to be able to give it, give what you can give to them um, without holding back, with love, with passion and with regularity. <laughs> I apologise again for this podcast being late. Let's read the poem. So, I'm really looking forward to reading this. I think, hopefully, when I've talked about this poem afterwards, we'll look about what's tricky about this poem and other poems by Dickinson. And But when you get to know these little things about Dickinson, especially there's just a few things you should know when you read her work, and then you're off to the races. You're reading loads of her work and having great fun reading it too. So hopefully I can inculcate in you what I have inculcated in myself and had other teachers inculcate into me which is there's something resistant about Dickinson's work when you first read it well I, I will explain how that resistance is generated in a minute but you can go through just a few little methods on reading her work look for a few things and I think it's it, it's very gratifying after that and the resistance isn't there anymore or in some ways the resistance is the point so there's a Certain Slant of Light by Emily Dickinson There's a certain slant of light, winter afternoons, that oppresses like the heft of cathedral tunes. Heavenly hurt it gives us, we can find no scar, but internal difference where the meanings are. None may teach it, any, tis the seal, despair, an imperial affliction sent us of the air. When it comes, the landscape listens, shadows hold their breath. When it goes, tis like the distance on the look of death. So, the first thing we should look at when we read a poem by Dickinson is the sense of comparison. Many of her poems consist of that, a comparison of two things, the extension, a far more extension of a skillful extension of a metaphor than I than I've been capable of previously in this podcast. But before actually I, I get too much into in investigating this metaphor, I want to address something which is, I bet there's something about the poems of Dickinson that seems to put up a little wall to your understanding of them. You might notice this. You might not have noticed it. Maybe you just got it right away. I don't know. But um, when the, the problem, I think that the, not the problem, but, but this sense of resistance comes from the fact that the poems are written in quite a regular meter. Bumby, 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 bum. Bumby, bumby, bum. Bumby, 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 bum. Bumby, bumby, bum. And this meter is found. It's a sort of a four stress line followed by a three stress line followed by a four stress line followed by a three stress line. Now we've looked at the ballad. We looked at the Trois Corbys in the second ever episode of Rusty Sonnets. And so we know that sound, don't we? We've heard it in nursery rhymes. We hear it in bawdy poems. The, uh, the idea of the four lines, the quatrain, one line, four syllables, one line, three syllables, one line, four syllables, one line, three syllables. It's just one of the most familiar metrical qualities in poetry that we know. We know it, we know it from something else as well, but I want to save that for a little few more, a few more moments from now. So 
So we get the sing-song quality of that metrical pattern, but the language is is the opposite. We expect it to. So when we read a ballad that normally we, there's a story unfolding, there's not much resistance. It's not the kind of meter that's made for resistance. It's the kind of meter that is made for a, a jaunty, fast-paced narrative adventure or narrative episode with lots of urgency behind it if we think about the ballad. That, that is conveyed to the listener but within Dickinson it's different there's there's a certain hesitancy within her within what she's saying it's quite fragmentary especially when we have these dashes coming in the dashes really chop things up and we feel like these little fragments of thoughts are creeping in and some of these thoughts are, are never finished in fact often Dickinson's poetry has an unfinished quality to it so as I was comparing her to Whitman and saying that Whitman was very much a sort of romantic poet who used um, formal or should say free verse ideas in his poetry or a free verse style that is more associated with modern poetry, even though I think a lot of his ideas quite tidily fitted in with modernism, I mean with romanticism. Um, Dickinson's the other way round. She has this very traditional form which is the same form as the ballad but the themes that she conveys and how and how she articulates them it's quite fragmented and unfinished a lot of her poems feel like they're unfinished that they feel like that the, the thought has just been chopped off and it could go somewhere else but we're always sort of denied that completion that sense of completion so this fragmentary aspect and this this conveying of how perhaps the human mind starts on things and often abandons them the way thoughts just kind of lead and spin around and go different places but there's never a, a sense of completion with your thoughts anyone who does mindfulness will probably know that you know anyone who meditates and pays attention to their thoughts and where their thoughts go there's there's little logic to them so there's that that's where the resistance comes from i think that actually you have to go back and read her more carefully the jaunty meter and the jaunty rhythm of the poem makes you feel like it's something that you can just follow and just listen to quite you don't have to listen to that carefully or you don't have to read that carefully but actually you do you do have to go back over it and look at these images and look at her articulation and sometimes see the little vague and unfinished bits as something that you just have to do what you want with but you you can't just there's no specific meaning sometimes they're intentionally sort of left unfinished they're intentionally um spare like that you feel that a lot of what's being said is hidden behind these expressions so we go into the poem now let's see what the poem is actually saying then i can go into a bit more detail about the meter so there's a certain slant of light winter afternoons it's all pretty simple firstly isn't it and it's and there's not too many dashes either it's there's a certain slant of light comma Winter afternoons. There's some interesting capitalization in this poem as well. Sort of a lot of the poem is quite randomly capitalized, as if things are being named. So the slant of light, the slant is capitalized, and winter afternoons are capitalized as well, as if they're they're, they're things and you know much more recognizable things in themselves. But we can all we can all understand how the light is on a winter afternoon. I mean, it's quite let's say oppressive that you're you know you're barely halfway through the day and you can feel the dark coming on already and that the light just really isn't there but the sun hasn't even kind of reached its apex it's just gone sort of halfway up the sky and went oh sod this and gone back down again so um 
we get that we all know that but then the next line is that oppresses like the heft of cathedral tunes so light we, we so we, so we have these two images she's introduced these two images now i was going to speak about what she does with the images which is something else that can trip us up when we're making sense of the poem so with a metaphor or a simile um, a simile is a kind of metaphor actually metaphor is like the sort of big branching name for all of these ways of comparing two things ultimately when we have a metaphor we take two things that aren't immediately alike and we sort of put them together in order to show that there is a way in which they are alike um so and that's it really that's what a metaphor does it's sort of we we take something else that shares some qualities with one thing in order to accentuate and exaggerate and draw attention to those particular qualities of one thing or make us look at this other thing in a new way by putting two things together that we normally wouldn't put together so when we have something that we're describing with a metaphor so um in this part we have two things one is called the tenor and one is called the vehicle now the tenor is the thing itself that is being described and the vehicle is the thing that's being compared to it so i now go back to the same line of shakespeare's to illustrate iambic pentameter and everything else but when when uh shakespeare says can i shall i compare thee to a summer's day the um tenor is obviously the the fair youth and the summer's day is the vehicle so it's the thing that's sort of holding the meaning the pointing out the meaning so the thing that is being dealt with and being described is the tenor and the image that is used to complement it and describe it is the vehicle that's all you need to know so in this poem the thing that's being described is the, the, the tenor the thing that's being described is the slant of light and the vehicle so the image that it, that is being compared to in order to draw out qualities from that thing, the shaft of life, the vehicle is cathedral tunes or the heft of cathedral tunes. Now, the heft is obviously the weight of something, the, you know, how to carry it, the awkwardness of it, the heft of it, the weight that you can sort of feel in your hand or feel on your body. So normally I find that heft, the way it's used is it's sort of it's not just. It's not just the weight of things. It's very much how the weight manifests in your bodily interaction with something. So she's saying that this light is like she's already going into another metaphor, which is a cathedral tune, obviously, is an abstract entity or it's a sound. And yet she's sort of saying that there's something that weighs us down about that sound. So there's already another metaphor going on within the tenor itself. And this is this is this is what she does in the sense that the normally in a poem we have the tenor and the vehicle and the relationship of the vehicle to the tenor is still quite subservient the tenor is the focus of our attention and the vehicle is there to bring out qualities of a ten tenor that we weren't aware of before so the image that is brought in the metaphor that is brought in is brought in to bring out qualities in the subject the thing itself that we're looking at it's there just to point out un, uh, seemingly perhaps unseen or unknown or, 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 or qualities of it that aren't obvious. So, but what Dickinson does is that the importance of the tenor and the vehicle are quite interchangeable. And actually, she'll just go into much more detail about the vehicle and almost forget about the tenor. 
or sometimes the vehicle suddenly becomes the focus of the poem and they've switched roles and now the tenor is bringing out qualities in the vehicle instead and they can swap over roles or there's a sense of transformation also that comes that it's not just that the vehicle points out qualities of the tenor that we didn't know before the vehicle is suddenly changing the tenor it's transforming the tenor and it's a much more almost adversarial or contradictory relationship between the two that normally appears in poems again something that makes her a bit more modern so let's read it out again just little moments of it so there's a certain slant of light winter afternoons that oppresses like the heft of cathedral tunes heavenly hurt it gives us we can find no scar but internal difference where the meanings are so um what we could so so traditionally we would say hey our focus is still even though the cathedral tunes have been introduced our focus is still on the tenor which is the slant of light on winter afternoons but you kind of feel that it's more about the cathedral tune. So heavenly hurt it gives us. We can find no scar, but internal difference where the meanings are. Now, I think it applies to both. This, these first two lines of the second stanza, heavenly hurt it gives us. That's fine because light comes from the heavens um, as I guess for the cathedral tunes. And when we think cathedral tunes, we only think of a, an organ in a massive building but it's the acoustics of the building and I guess the people singing in the building as well, which is, I think, quite Catholic in its in its in its ethos, because the building itself, the church itself becomes the instrument. It's not just that the organ is an instrument. Everything becomes the instrument because the acoustics of the cathedral play as much of a role as the organ itself plays and the organ player and then the people singing as well. So it is almost like the in the same way that um, the strings of a guitar rely on the sort of hollow bass of a guitar to create the sound and the acoustics. Um, the organ in a lot of ways for its particular distinctive organ sound relies on the acoustics of a church to create that sort of sense of vastness, the vastness, the greatness of God. So as, as the cathedral does in a visual sense as well. Now she thinks this is oppressive. Um, this is what I'm saying. Like, so, um, but internal difference where the meanings are, you see, I think the internal difference makes more sense when we're looking at the cathedral tunes rather than the light. I'm not sure. I mean, maybe the light creates internal difference, which is at least there is some light. It's winter. There's not a lot of light. So this is the light you're getting. But you should be grateful for it, mate. Okay? So that could be the internal difference. But I think the internal difference really is about her relationship with religion. It makes much more sense. The woman who sat down and didn't rise when asked if she wants to remain a Christian. But either way, but at the end, I think that they gave designations in this school that she was at. And... Um, and so sometimes the, the girls, the women, the young women were divided into categories of expressing hope and without hope. And she was one of people said that she was the only one designated as without hope at the end. But actually, it was meant to be about 30 who were designated without hope. Um, without hope, it wasn't necessarily as final as it was. It just meant they needed to have more instruction. Um, there was a Calvinist aspect to the religion at the time as well. So there's a puritanical Calvinist background, even though um, the revivalist ethos was coming in. But it was still Amherst, Massachusetts was a very religious town. So these contradictions, you know, her and religion, 
Um, I don't know how well she wore new cathedrals, but maybe the tunes, maybe it was in her church. So there were tunes that were made for cathedrals that she listened to in her own church. So Heavenly Hurt, it gives us, we can find no scar. It's, it, that's quite obvious, isn't it? It's an internal it's an internal hurt, but internal difference where the meanings are. Again, that's quite a modernist idea. The fact that meaning comes from internal tensions, internal differences, sort of believing two things at the same time or alternating between two sets of beliefs, sort of non, not being sure, but actually there isn't a harmony, there is a tension at the centre of things and that's what gives us meaning rather than harmony giving us meaning. And is this not expressed? I'm going to jump. So before we jump into these last two two stanzas, but does it isn't this is what I get from her poems as well? Because of course I was talking about that meter meter earlier, the three stress line followed no the four stress line followed by the three stress line, and the four stress line followed by the three stress line isn't just something we know from bawdy rhymes and nursery rhymes, and from ballads. It's something we also know from hymns. So she's talking about this difference and this tension, but that tension is, I mean, this poem could just as much be about her own work because the meter of the cathedral tunes ultimately inform the actual meter of her poetry. Part of her poetry is written in the same meter as cathedral tunes, as hymns. And so, but at the same time, we get this tension, we get this this modernist aspect, we get we get a poem that's sort of rebelling against religion while it's so so it's contradicting it's full of contradictions and so almost you know this could be an ars poetica an ars poetica is just a fancy name borrowed i think from horace which means a poem about poetry so this could be a poem about her poetry as well so the internal difference of her poetry of the meter of the cathedral tunes but and yet she's a lot about this poem is talking about how oppressive cathedral tunes are and her style also with her dashes and her half-finished thoughts also contradict what we find endemic to the meter let's move on to the next stanza none may teach it any tis the seal despair an imperial affliction sent us of the air so what she's saying none may teach it any i mean are we still talking about cathedral tunes are we talking about light no one can teach light no one can teach a slight slant of light fine um, but no, she's talking about that internal difference, isn't she? Where the meanings are. She's almost saying that actually you can't be taught this. No instructor. Any, again, well, we're going to the any in a minute. This this any drives me up the wall. <laughs> One word at the end of a, the first line of the third stanza of this poem, separated by dashes. An absolute fragment, you know, just something that just has no bearing at all. But let's go where, where we have to struggle and fill in the blanks ourselves. So none may teach it any. She is talking about that internal difference because I guess we are all internally different ourselves. So the contradiction that lies within the heart of you and the struggle and the tension that lies within the heart of you is different from the struggle and the tension that lies within the heart of me and lies within the heart of Emily Dickinson. None may teach it any. What is this any referring to? None may teach it dash any dash. None may teach any of it. Um, any of the people that are teachers can't teach it. No one can teach any of it. It's so almost it's so infuriating and exciting at the same time. Just the use of one little word any. So tis the seal despair. If you were listening to it and thinking of a, a seal 
an actual animal, then good for you. You are still a joyous child at heart and there's nothing wrong with that. But I think some of us know that it's more the seal was in the, be it the seal, an imperial seal, perhaps, because she talks about imperialism. But, you know, the insignia, the seal, the seal that we kind of stamp onto a onto a letter to send to another important person via messenger back in the day. Um, so, yeah, none may teach you any. Tis the seal despair. An imperial affliction sent us of the air. So... Are we getting back to the light now? Light passing through the air? I think we are returning to the light. But again, an imperial affliction. I, it's hard to think of the, the slant of light, even the impressiveness of the light being imperial in nature. Or we have to kind of, it's more of a stretch. But for the hymn, for the cathedral tune, it's right there, isn't it? It's just a, an imperial affliction, almost like, a, you know, the British Empire, because this is an American poet, a hangover of empire, these hymns. But yes, these you know the Puritans and the Pilgrims. Um, America is meant to be a nation, even though there is actually a great tradition of free thought in America, especially in the United States of America, especially within the founding fathers, who were who were all who were, a lot of them were Deists rather than Christians. So they believed that there was a God, but God just kind of made everything and then went off and left us to our devices rather than being involved in our lives, which is the absolute opposite of the Calvinist Puritanical belief calvinists believe that everything is ordained there is no freedom in a sense god has set our paths in motion and there and everything that we do is ultimately along that track so whoever is going to to going to go to hell it's already it's already been decided whoever's going to heaven it's already been decided um an interesting contradiction there obviously with ideas of freedom that are often brought up to um when we speak about original sin back to the poem um so an imperial affliction, she's, it is pointing out that this is a hangover of empire. So even though America was, the United States of America were founded, one of the, one of the most guiding founding principles was to get parts, to, to escape religious persecution. And the first settlers, you know, that was their main reason for going to America, to be able to practice their own religion freely. And yet at the same time, this imperial affliction, um, it's it's really interesting, isn't it? It's this hangover of empire, these cathedrals, these hymns. This is what's weighing us down. Um, but again, we can, and that's when we can kind of compare it to the light. Okay, this light is oppressive in the same way that religion is oppressive, because the religion that we've inherited in at this time in the states or whatever still has the mark of empire upon it. Final stanza: When it comes, the landscape listens. Shadows hold their breath. When it goes, tis like the distance on the look of death. The dashes do some interesting work here. So it says, when it comes, the landscape listens. Shadows hold their breath. There's a dash between shadows and hold their breath. I mean, that's just a sentence. Shadows hold their breath. I mean, I get it. But the dash just between shadows and hold their breath. I guess it places that distance. The idea of shadows holding their breath anyway is really interesting. I'm not sure what it means. So when it comes, the landscape listens. Shadows hold their breath. So there's personification of the landscape here, isn't it? The, the landscape is listening and shadows are holding their breath. There's a quietness to things. There's almost Things are so quiet that it can almost be thought of as attentiveness when the light is at this certain way on a winter afternoon. When it goes... 
tis like the distance on the look of death so when the landscape listens i think that's our last illusion almost to the vehicle and we are returning to the tenor now even though the poem itself really just makes us forget whether we're dealing with the tenor or the vehicle or which one is serving which so we get to the end and we have that idea of the music because the landscape is listening and shadows are holding their breath and then when it goes it's like the distance on the look of death now when there's a lot of ambiguity in these lines also it ends on a dash and the dash always sort of says something's coming so again the poem sort of ends suddenly there's no full stop it's a dash dash is very much to be continued oh and another thing so there's this sense of incompletion she speaks about death a lot and i think death seems to the death and the dash are one you know death is what just chops things off at the end <laughs> you know death just comes along and doesn't care if you're ready or not uh, another poem I nearly read, I forget the title of it today, was one about someone on their deathbed and there's a fly buzzing. And that fly just having that same disregard that death has, you know, oh, this is meant to be your great final moment. And here I am. Bzzz. So, um, but in this poem, the distance, when it goes, it's like the distance on the look of death. So the look of death could be compared it, when it goes. So when the light goes, fair enough, it's nighttime, isn't it? So once that light is gone, it is like the distance of the look of death. Well, night is like night and death have been compared in poems for ages. It's quite straightforward. Um, but when the music goes, when the imperial music goes, the imperial tunes, you know, the imperial cathedral tunes go, it's like the distance on the look of death. It's much more. Is that the silence? Is that the death intruding on the silence when the music stops? Hmm. I think we're back with the with the tenor now, I think, at the end of the poem. Just because I think we're stretching a lot more if we stay with the vehicle for those final lines. So, yeah, that's my description of the poem. I don't think I have to go too much into the meter and everything else because I've already spoken about it and the sort of style. I think the style and content are so wedded in this poem that you can't describe one without the other. Again, this sort of idea of internal tensions, the tensions that exist all over the place in this poem, the tensions between tenor and vehicle, the tensions between style and content um, and meter and content and just the tensions between the the actual sort of syntax itself the, the 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 dashes the little the little statements that seem to contradict each other um it's it's full of that isn't it but i i, I feel like i've analyzed the poem <laughs> i feel like i don't have to okay i'm moving on to the metrical aspect of the poem because i've i've spoken about it in a lot of ways that sort of feature all of them so in that case, I think I've spoken enough about the poem. It's a fantastic poem. So yeah, when you read Dickinson, go and read some more Dickinson because they're all little poems, but they have that same feeling. But watch out for those those things, which is watch out for the how tenor and vehicle swap over roles and how there is not, you know, the, 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 the relationship between them is quite interchangeable and not as set as it normally is in a poem. And secondly, being aware of that sing-song-songy ballad him nursery rhyme quality of the meter um sort of coupled with the fragmentariness and the hesitancy and the sort of sometimes the intentional vagueness of what is actually being said in the poem and the syntax of the poem but that's enough for now i don't know what i'm going to wander off on one about by the way sometimes i plan it sometimes i have no idea again i've wandered off on one quite a lot already haven't i in this in a little interlude here but let's just play Ric Flair saying woo because it's an acronym for wander off on one and then I'll wander off on one. Thank you very much, Ric Flair.
I don't know what I'm going to talk about. <laughs> oh, I was full of ideas. I was full of ideas before this. Um, can I talk about self-publishing again? And fame and stuff. I don't know if I've spoken about this already. I like the idea of Emily Dickinson just making her own books and sending them to friends. And um, she seemed to dismiss the idea. In her biography, um, there was a publisher who enjoyed her work, but he we don't know much about his correspondence. We only know sort of from her reaction to his correspondence that he didn't find them valuable enough to publish or he wanted to change them quite a lot. And so she changed her sort of attitude towards public publication because of this. So while we know from sort of earlier letters and texts that she was quite eager to be published and to feel that validation of being published or being more widely published, she seemed to be content and settle into and be quite... Dis well, she seemed to be dismissive of publishing and she seemed to be content to just have a small circle of people with the little small circles that radiate from that. So she'd send books to friends and those friends would probably read those poems to their friends as well. Um, I think this isn't a bad thing. I, th I think that this, I think that we need to get away. I think the internet is changing a lot of things. And one is that a lot of us can just publish our work now. Now, at the same time, it doesn't change anything, but, but you can get your work out. And what we find out from the internet, because we have analytics, like you bring out a video on YouTube and, and, and you get the little views on underneath the YouTube video. And I think you get this with SoundCloud and a few other things as well. And it's merciless, isn't it? It's absolutely merciless. You upload something and you just get that many views. And there it is. The whole world is told that as well by this thing you've uploaded. Only this many people have, have listened to it. Now, I made a comment on social media earlier this week because people talk about podcasts and um, about how like everyone has a podcast. And there's a running joke on Twitter. So that if someone has a, a someone who's not really famous or anything, someone who's never really had a post go viral, when someone has a po post go viral, there's a running joke where they say, I don't have a SoundCloud, but and then they promote something, be it something of their own or maybe something that they like that they think everyone else will enjoy. Um, so I don't have a SoundCloud. So this joke comes from the idea that everyone's got a podcast now. And I don't think that's a bad thing. So the joke normally relies on this sense of it being bad. Oh, look, everyone's got a podcast. Everyone's got these podcasts that no one listens to. Actually, it's not a bad thing at all. I think we have to get past the mindset of going viral. I think we have to get past the mindset of being famous. Um, there's the Andy Warhol maxim, isn't it? In the future, everyone will be famous for 15 minutes. Maybe. Maybe that just means that one viral post on Twitter. Maybe that means a few things. Um, I think. Ultimately, I think that Andy Warhol probably wasn't the most reliable person in a lot of ideas and things like that. But it's just a really snappy statement that we keep repeating. But I think, actually, if you create something and you have a circle, a small but dedicated following, then you're sort of doing maybe the same thing that Emily Dickinson did. And while she went on to have a massive following, I think she seemed to be quite satisfied for her poetry to radiate outwards. She wanted it to be read. But she didn't necessarily have this idea that I need millions of people to like it and to tell me I'm great to validate me as well. She just liked the idea that there is something that radiates out from her. I'm really extrapolating here about the inattentions of Emily Dickinson's being. But it seemed to she she enjoyed the creative process of making something, writing poetry, writing them out in a book, stitching that book together and then sending it off. 
and then that poem sort of radiating. So you know, there's something radiates through her. It's created. She then creates something else, so she can send it to other people, and it radiates outwards again. And I think we should get this idea. I think I, I've I've advocated for this being how we should teach creativity. I think a lot of creativity, when you look at writing workshops and stuff like that, is so focused on you being that one person that that that, that wins big prizes or has thousands of followers or you know has great success in in the traditional ways of defining success which is lots of people like it or the critics really like it or it wins prizes you know these different ideas of success within art normally success means one of those or even all of them um in fact if anything um we find people that are really successful but are always having a bit of a moan about how the critics don't like them. And then you get the other way around, who are people who are critical darlings moaning about why they're not more successful. I'm saying that I don't think anyone ever finds satisfaction at the end of this, do they? So, but I think you can find satisfaction actually in having a small following. Like this podcast, like I look at the statistics, yeah, and it looks like I've got about 30 people that regularly listen to it. And that's fantastic. And these people, I mean, I look at the analytics. I don't know who you are, but there's people from different countries that listen to this and they pop up in my stats. And it's like, oh, my goodness, that person from that town in that country listened to me again. That's brilliant. That's absolutely amazing. Now, of course, you're tempted to think, well, maybe there's I've just reached these people. Maybe there's more like minded people in every country and I just need to reach them and I can build my following. That could be the case. But for now. It's really nice. It's really nice just to have this sense of I create something, it radiates outwards a little bit. It doesn't take over the world, <laughs> but it's sort of, it's still bigger than me. Isn't that what we want ultimately? That what we create, we just want it to be a little bit bigger than us, to reach a little bit further than we can reach. We don't need it to take over everything. I think that sense of accomplishment should the sense of accomplishment comes earlier. That's what I'm saying with your art. The sense of accomplishment comes earlier than the point when you have dominated the world that actually the point of diminishing returns between a good response and the satisfaction at that good response um, comes in earlier and it's similar with wealth isn't it i think there's a certain i think in america they say something like that um, it's still a lot of money but people tend to um, up until a certain point, people are genuinely glad to make more money and it actually brings more to their life. But when they hit something, and I think it's something like $75,000 a year, which is still a lot of, lot of money. But after that 75000 it meant it reached a point when people were no longer as satisfied with it. The, the, you know, the, it became diminishing returns or sort of the in increments of satisfaction dropped quite dramatically after that point. And I think it's the same with your art. I think it is. I think the satisfaction you get from reaching people actually probably unless you're a full-on narcissist megalomaniac um i think it actually cuts out a lot earlier um you know this from like other people that create stuff so youtubers are interesting creatures aren't they i know we're very dismissive of them sometimes but it's interesting because they can actually they have had an experience of going from sort of not being followed by anyone to being a worldwide phenomenon in quite a quick amount of time and a lot of them say that um, the satisfaction they feel of crossing over the threshold of a million followers um, is pretty much the same, if not less, than the satisfaction that they, they had when they reached their first 1,000 followers or their first 100. I just think if you're an artist, that's something to keep in mind. And if that is the truth, if the satisfaction and the meaning we get from things 
actually comes from reaching an audience but not as big an audience as we think it should be then maybe in the way that we teach art and the way that we promote art we should have more of an organic sort of human network methodology that accentuates this that actually a lot more of us more of us can find meaning with smaller audiences rather than focusing on the people that we think of as stars or the chosen ones and that's all i'm going to say about that for this week thank you very much for listening I always enjoy doing this. I always enjoy sharing this. I always get a little thrill whenever someone shares it themselves or pushes that little radiating circle that little bit further. Um, Because unlike Emily Dickinson's beautiful Stitched Together books, and once again, I recommend if you're a poet, try it. Try making your own books. And even if they're just presents that you give to people, um, I think it's far more valuable than a fake-ass paperback. Um, But anyway... um, if you enjoyed this podcast, then uh, yeah, share it out, make it radiate, radiate a little bit further. I'm not saying I want to like take over the world or anything like, but again, I, 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 at the same time, I don't think I've reached that level yet where the diminishing returns creep in. So um, yeah, if you can share it, if you can give it a review on iTunes or whatever, that's really nice. If you want to say hello to me, I'm not on Twitter as much at the moment because I felt Twitter fatigue and um I, I got my little internal wellness alarm bells going off. And when I have my internal wellness alarm bells go off, I get the hell off social media because podcasts, again, if everyone has a podcast, one more thing about podcasts is that um, if you've got 30 people that listen to you talk about something for like 10 minutes to two hours or whatever, there's so much more meaning in that. I think than this crummy little drip drip interface of social media where ultimately someone is harvesting data from you as well i think it's much more meaning for people to maybe walk to the shops while listening to you hold court about something than them seeing whatever snappy witty zinger you've just fired off on social media so anyway but if you are on social media um and even though i'm kind of logged out at the moment um or i'll be logging back in to share this podcast um my my twitter handle is poet niall p-o-e-t-n-i-a-l-l you can also contact me um, via rustysonnets at gmail.com rustysonnets at gmail.com and I, I i forgot to promote this i've got a website as well you know nialosullivan.co.uk n-i-a-l-l-o-s-u-l-l-i-v-a-n.co.uk if you want to just look at any of my other stuff be it my poems or my my uh, little blogs and sort of essays about different things to do with poetry so yeah that's it guys thanks very much i'm once again sorry that this is later than usual i'm going to stop recording now and get straight into the editing booth which is a much more laborious thing actually than what 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 even the idea of an editing booth suggests but i feel really happy that i finally got around to recording this and hopefully i'm really happy that you'll eventually get around to listening to it have a good week and i'll catch you next time hopefully bang on time again